2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Kristen Miala's young She's the current prose writer-in-residence at Hugo House in Seattle. Her prize-winning investigations, book reviews, and essays have appeared in the Washington Post, The Guardian, and elsewhere. She was also a researcher for the New York Times team that produced Snowfall, which won a Pulitzer Prize and a Peabody. But we're excited to have her on the show today, though, to talk about her debut novel, Subduction. The novel has already been hailed as an utterly unique and important first novel by Miss Magazine and a lyrical and atmospheric debut by Kirkus Reviews. It's available this March through Red Hand Press. Kristen is young welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ryan.
2: So Kristen, before we get started, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. What did I miss from your bio?
1: Well, I began this very long path to being a debut novelist by becoming a reporter. I was a beat and investigative reporter that began in really in at Time magazine for a brief uh, jaunt and then went down to Buenos Aires uh, to work for the Buenos Aires Herald, uh, one of several of my former employers who have stopped printing in the great collapse of the newspapers that have occurred uh, internationally over the past 10 years, in which time uh, we've lost about half of our news core. But during that time, I became a freelancer and uh, started working for uh, the New York Times, where I was the researcher for a Pulitzer Prize winning package called Snowfall, the Avalanche at Tunnel Creek, the digital narrative uh, written by John Branch. And from there, began writing for The Guardian, uh, where I conducted an investigation that took me about a year of the disappearance of a Native actress named Misty Upham. And then from there, began writing uh, reported essays for them, uh, writing about really invoking myself for the first time for a major news outlet. I had, in the interim, begun writing essays. I think any novelist will tell you that writing a novel makes you get into your uh, issues. (laughs) (laughs) And I found that personal essays were the craft response uh, most suited to exploring those questions that writing daylighted but could not quiet. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I became an essayist and... Uh, then became a book critic. I write uh, pretty regular book reviews for the Washington Post and have been very happy to bring some other debut novelists uh, like Juliet Escoria and um, uh, John Engelhart and um, Sarah Blake into the canon, while also writing about uh, people like Carmen Maria Machado and Valeria Luiselli, whose work I have been following for years. And... Um, I'm working on my next book, but, you know, in the interim, I have been trying very hard to uh, find a path uh, for myself and others to have difficult conversations and that I think are very needed in our society. And I think that literature and novels are a very beautiful entryway into those conversations that can be otherwise difficult to begin.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to start off by asking you about the inspiration behind this book. How did it begin for you?
1: You know, it's interesting. When I was born, I was born in Florida, and I'm a part of a Cuban-American family on one side, Uh, my mother's side. She immigrated to the United States just before uh, the Castro dictatorship uh, took power. And Batista was the dictator at that time uh, when she immigrated and was uh, no better and in many ways uh, much worse uh, than Castro had been. So... I I grew up within this immigrant household run by Cuban exiles and really thought primarily about how to manage our forward progress into the society that had accepted us uh, and would then uh, be expecting um, some serious ongoing contributions of uh, our labors, whether intellectual or physical. And that idea, uh, that kind of empathetic Centering of my own story within the United States kind of governed the way that I thought of myself for for decades. I mean, I was when I was hired at the Seattle Post Intelligencer, I was the only Spanish speaking reporter on staff, and so I really felt that it was my role to bring equity and uh, perspective to various beats, whatever they were, whether it was the uh, corporate uh, retail. Uh, beat that I was first began on or then moving on to small business columns and then kind of um, pretty uh, sustained investigations of the port of Seattle and its uh, corruption and malfeasance uh, during uh, the early part of the art of the aughts, excuse me. And so it took me a while actually took me moving to uh, the Pacific Northwest to take that job at the Seattle Post Intelligence Server to realize that every single immigrant to this land is also a settler. And I became aware of that when I realized the very real political presence and uh, sociological and physical presence, uh, intellectual artistic presence of the many, many native tribes of the Pacific Northwest. And I became very curious about the ways in which that pivot from immigrant to settler had never been presented to me as part of this journey, and I wanted to juxtapose what it meant for someone to be trying to thrive in diaspora, while also, in many ways, displacing uh, the very real and ongoing needs of our nation's first peoples. And as I said to that, I mean that—that's what made me spend ten years researching and writing this book.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I really want to get more into this in a a moment. Um, I did want to ask you if you could set the scene for our listeners a little bit about where this takes place in the Pacific Northwest.
1: So the uh, subduction is set in a very real place, uh, Nia Bay, which is on the Macaw Indian Reservation on the Northwest tip of the lower 48. And uh, the Macaw tribe uh, have... um, you know, occupied that land uh, for thousands of years. There have been uh, many different archeological finds which sustain their claim to that territory, uh, including a very famous uh, now uh, dig at Ozette, where a group of longhouses, part of a a small cluster of villages um, that had been kind of distributed throughout that region that were all inhabited by Macaw peoples, the longhouses were buried in a landslide uh, that many believe was occasioned by, uh, you know, uh, geologic activity. And they were buried in this saltwater beach. And so when the uh, years later it was in the seventies, some hikers uh, began finding artifacts on the beach that were being unearthed by erosion in the waves. And they called, uh, over to the Macaw tribe and said, Hey, you know, people are beginning to walk away with, um, all of these artifacts. And so the tribe, um, went out there and verified that this find had begun to be uncovered by, by nature. Uh, and they began working with, uh, Doc Doherty who then oversaw with the tribe, uh, the unearthing and, uh, preservation of just thousands upon thousands of artifacts that helped prove uh, many different aspects of Native life, including ancestral fishing rights, uh, which went all the way to the Supreme Court based on these technologies that had been preserved by saltwater. And so it's on the Pacific, and because of that preservation, uh, their technologies were proven. That's one of the things that often happens with Indigenous peoples who have work with wood technology or with basketry, um, they have a harder time establishing their claim to certain kinds of fishing and other kinds of inhabitation because uh, time has eroded those materials. And so it was, you know, particularly spectacular and necessary uh, for native fishing rights within uh, the Pacific Northwest that this find uh, made its way into public consciousness. Uh, through the efforts of the Macaw Tribe, which keeps um, the artifacts at the Macaw Cultural and Resource Center in Nia Bay. And I recommend anyone who wants to visit Nia Bay uh, should check out that museum and look at the excellent, excellent uh, curation of artifacts there. Um, That museum is led uh, currently by Janine Ledford uh, and the board president, uh, Meredith Parker. Uh, helps to uh, support the work of the staff to continue uh, creating this cultural resource, not only for uh, visitors to the tribe, but most particularly for tribal members themselves. Um, and so it's um, the center of a language revitalization, which has uh, recently seen the hiring of several uh, new teachers to uh, help bridge the gaps between the very you know beginning instruction and then the middle school and uh, other kinds of instruction of the language. Um, and so it's a small town, you know, on this fairly remote uh, part of the Olympic Peninsula. And yet their organization, uh, their political organization, their cultural efforts uh, really uh, speak to uh, a global quality. Uh, they have had to defend their rights to uh, pursue um treaty-guaranteed rights like whale hunting, uh, which have been under uh, global siege from environmental groups and those who uh, do not respect uh, the bargains that were struck by the U.S. government in order to acquire the land uh, that had belonged to the Macaw. And I think that they do a beautiful job of uh, showing their culture and uh, their rights in such a way as to invite others to reconsider what they had known or thought to be true. Um, and in my encounters uh, over the past 15 years, uh, I began researching this book in earnest in 2007, uh, but I had uh, been going out there for several years before then. Um, during that time, I have found uh, just been so impressed with the ways in which uh, the members of this community show up for each other. You know their uh, ceremonies uh, will take you know days to complete, and people make time for it, and they bring their children uh, to sit at at these ceremonies. And um, you know there's no like oh going home you know because it's six thirty you know p.m. and the kid needs to to sleep and go to bed. You know they they were like this is important and showing up for each other is important, and so you see whole families together showing up for each other at some of these potlatches and other kinds of ceremonies, which they do um, on Makah Days in August of every year. They hold a series of dances and song for uh, their tribe and for visitors to appreciate uh, how much they have sustained through this communal effort that I was just describing. And um, those who visit that Makah Days will find um they do this like salmon bake using ancestral methods where they split cedar, um, and fit the, 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 kind of like, uh, um, kind of fillet the salmon and then stick it on this stick right in, next to a fire. And then the oil is just dripping into the sand and it's like this coppery oil and it's so good. Um, and so they have this whole thing right on this long low beach that is, uh, kind of the, um, The frontispiece for the small town Um, and then you can drive through that town where there's no stoplights um, and keep going out to Cape Flattery which is the northwest tip of the lower 48 or Hobug Beach uh, which is popular with surfers and also where my uh, protagonist Claudia um, stays during her uh, anthropological um, inquiry of the Macaw peoples.
2: Yeah, let's talk about Claudia for a moment. She's your protagonist. What kind of background is she coming from?
1: I think the thing that's key to know about Claudia is that although she is someone who is in, um, who's fully aware of the ways in which culture conditions us to embrace or disinherit our um, ethnicity and race and cultural background in order to assimilate and be considered successful or Uh, passable within mainstream society. Although as an anthropologist, uh, she is very aware of those factors. She remains at their behest. She is not able in her own right to, uh, fully claim who she is through changing circumstances. And so for large parts of her life and the book, although she is, uh, you know, learned English as a second language and, um, you know, was born in Mexico, uh, she is basically passing as white um, and is, has, you know, uh, taken in a lot of the uh, cultural beliefs of the society that she has joined uh, through her father's line and also through uh, her husband, um, who had kind of acted as um, a cultural pressure point for her um, through their you know, f- fractured marriage. And so you know, she is, based, she is basing herself for this moment um, within the Macaw tribe, but she hasn't really fully reckoned with what it means for her to be uh, living in diaspora and living as an American, but still uh, knowing that her Latinidad has been the most formative aspect of her upbringing but she she hides it because she's afraid of losing ground uh, to uh, peoples who will try to marginalize those who come from other cultures. And she decided to embrace uh, an assimilated self in order to be uh, taken into the power structures uh, that she hopes will make her successful.
2: You know, saying that sparked something in my mind about uh, Maria, who's Claudia's sister, um, as readers will find out in the book, there's reasons that Claudia has to resent her sister, but is one of those reasons also that that Maria has a deeper connection. It seems like to her culture that if Claudia is passing, then Maria definitely is
1: not. That's a funny thing is that people take in uh, cultural pressure differently. So whereas Claudia came when she was much came to the United States when she was much younger and was in a more vulnerable position in many ways, needing to find her way as a young person in society, uh, being stewarded by someone who doesn't really care about her as much as a father should. Um, so she kind of makes a series of hard choices that she felt were like the necessary choices uh, to like watch and study and learn and imitate uh, that what she sees around her, whether uh, you know, linguistically or culturally. And Maria uh, who came to the United States when she was a, a full grown adult, comes in with a much better sense of herself and is able to retain um, that, those things that she loved about her birth culture without feeling that uh, she would not be accepted or without perhaps caring that it would render her unacceptable to some Americans. And so she kind of holds on to her cultural identity as a banner of difference and embraces it. And because she immigrates to this country at a different time, Uh, than Claudia had, their receptions are also conditioned by the decades in which they came. Uh, There was a time when immigrant communities and that time is still still now um, are very pressured to assimilate and to quickly erase uh, their difference. Uh, And that is something that I saw growing up uh, within the uh, context of uh, Floridian uh, cultures and politics. And it's something that I have been very aware of as uh, you know, a Latina staff reporter and then a contributor to various news outlets um, that sometimes without meaning to replicate uh, norms of whiteness as though they were American norms. And so for Claudia, she has uh, had a harder time accepting that she made choices that she didn't have to make to gain something which still doesn't fully belong to her which is acceptance
2: yeah yeah and i want to ask you too there's another person that's coming in uh to the macaw nation uh early in the book and that's peter Um, And he almost comes across as like a co-protagonist. It's very much his story, too. So I want to ask you about him. And and what's bringing Peter back to the Macaw Nation after so long, to the reservation?
1: So Peter is someone who has been drifting through his life for a long time after a traumatic incident in his adolescence that uh, basically sent him away from uh, the reservation and his tribe and into uh, a series of itinerant jobs that were organized around a skill that he acquired, uh, which is uh, very you know eminently employable, which is being a commercial diver and uh, being an underwater welder. So as a result of kind of his choice of profession, which wasn't entirely a choice because he left before he had graduated from high school and he got his, you know, worked hard to get his GED and uh, to acquire skills uh, through... Uh, military enlistment that would allow him to be independent since he had kind of severed himself from the social supports and socioeconomic supports that he had had. He becomes um, someone who doesn't really have roots. Uh, And he comes back to uh, accept uh, on Macaw land, where his mother still lives. And one of his uh, dearest childhood friends finds him and contacts him and tells him that his mother has been diagnosed with dementia. And when he decides to come back, it's in part because there are things that his mother knows about the death and disappearance of his father that she has never told him. And he's concerned that she's going to lose her tenuous grip on reality before he ever learns uh, what it is that happened uh, on this night where he and his mother uh, together disposed of uh, his father's body at sea. And the specter of not knowing something that he had been avoiding and yet also containing within himself for so long just drove him to come back to Nia Bay. And it just so happens that he arrives uh, when Claudia has also traveled to Nia Bay for a research sabbatical uh, for her next book.
2: So Claudia's character actually hits, I think, on the nose, uh, a lot of concerns among academics and perceptions of the Academy. And I think you do a very good job at, at showing that. I did want to ask you, because when she gets back on the Macaw Reservation, her personal and professional lives are going to be very much in tension. Um, what is the conflict for her?
1: I think the conflict for her is the same as the conflict that many people who are professionals have which is that most of us have been taught that in order to be considered professional, we need to show up to our jobs as a white man. And that means uh, basically enacting and embodying uh, a supposed objectivity almost in the third person, really, uh, that doesn't allow for our real lived experience, real thoughts, real emotions, real hopes to surface during our daily professional lives. Most people, are they show up at work in body, but they are not there in soul. And to me, the most important aspect of the tension between Claudia's professional life and her personal life is that she has never actually shown up as herself in her professional life. And therefore, she is terrified that doing so would deprive her of the scant opportunities that she's been afforded by showing up as this disembodied intelligence.
2: Yeah. And as readers will quickly find out, her and Peter's stories become very entangled with each other. And I'm wondering about how these stories about contact and encounters, we should understand these cross-cultural connections um, in your book.
1: Well, the first thing is that there is no escaping the changing, uh, shifting power dynamics that underlie Peter and Claudia's encounters, that even if they had adhered to ethical boundaries and did not do all the things that they do in the book, that the ways in which they were conditioned to meet each other would create chasms that can seem insurmountable and yet can be bridged by simply showing human kindness and allowing someone to be their truest self in front of you and to, and to do the same for them. And when they uh, begin their affair, of course that's what happens, um, they haven't yet acknowledged in many ways how that engagement is subject to in kind of a fractal patterns, subject to all the historicity that uh, governs encounters by outsiders and uh, settlers and the uh, Makah tribal pe- members. So they're never able to escape this history, even as they, um, you know, embark on a series of actions that show them in collaboration that's both personal and professional. They never quite shake the uh, exploitative dynamic um, that has been pretty, um, pretty commonly characteristic of interactions between Uh, members of the academy and tribal members. And so, you know, they are, they want to be just people. And yet in some ways they can't help but be wary of each other uh, because of their respective positions. Um, And Claudia, uh, you know, quickly uh, disregards, um, you know, ethical boundaries that she most specifically, should adhere to. Um, And yet, Peter also exploits her vulnerability and exploits her in moments when, you know, her ability to um, truly be present and provide consent are questionable. Uh, And so the ways in which they treat each other um, begin kind of a series of escalating um, conflicts that ultimately uh, lead... Claudia uh, and Peter down the path that they take at the end of the
0: book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopifycom system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah. I mean, to think about the end of the book for a minute, uh, there's a scene at the end where uh, Peter, who's come back to the reservation and, and is having some questions about his own identity, although in different ways from Claudia. But at the end, he receives his Indian name. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of that within Macaul culture?
1: Well, within Macaul culture, the naming of a person, which often happens, of course, at birth, um, with a given name, but the Indian name uh, is given to uh, a person, tribal member, at a time of uh, transition or uh, a time of recognition of a new status um, within the tribe. And what it does is connect that person to the generations of other peoples who have had that same name. And so it's a reminder uh, through uh, language of, uh, family bonds and cultural heritage that extends back. millennia.
2: hmm I wanted to ask you, does Peter find healing in all of this? Um, it's something that I was wondering when I was reading the book.
1: The trouble with healing is that it's neither linear nor complete. So Peter does find solace and community with other Macaw tribal members. But the things that happened in his childhood cannot be undone. What he can do is to find a way of being and knowing that allows him to carry that knowledge with him without being destroyed by it. And to a a large extent, you know, despite his various attempts to make peace with his family history, he had been running from it all his life. So you know, there's nothing necessarily resolved about his psyche by the end of the book, but I think you do get the sense that Peter's going to be okay. Peter has, he has claimed a status, an identity for himself, which no one can take away from him.
2: Mm-hmm, right, okay. There's also ambiguity around Claudia at the end of the book as well. Um, how does her position then fare in comparison to Peter's. Is she in a different place?
1: I think with Claudia, you begin to see hints of her beginning to think outside of herself, which uh, is a thinking that you would imagine because of her profession, she would have perfected. And yet because of the agonism and ambition involved in academia, uh, she has become and been very self-centered throughout her career. And so, you know, through her work on the Macaw reservation uh, and through her engagements with Peter and his family. She is forced to reckon with the fact that not only is she not in control of the life that she's been leading, but that the surprises and unforeseen consequences of her actions may actually be the reward rather than the career that she has worked so hard to build.
2: Yeah, that's that's such an important point. And you know, I wanted to ask you too about um, the natural world. It's one of the first things I noticed when I was reading this book is just how much the environment is engulfing the presence of the book. Um, and I mean, it begins actually from your very first sentence. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the connection between this place and the story.
1: Well, the thing about the McCall culture is that it it evolved and is a living, it's a living culture, but it's also an ancient culture and its evolution from its ancient origins to uh, its living embodiment in the thousands of macaws who live in Nia, Be- N- Nia Bay and elsewhere, is that they grew up around this environment that is alternately staggeringly beautiful and hostile. I mean, you've, you haven't known cold until you've had that like cold, sideways, pelting rain uh, that is characteristic of, uh, of Nia Bay and indeed much of the Olympic Peninsula. And their hardiness within that cold, you know, it's funny. One of the other characters notes to Peter because Peter is outside smoking a cigarette with his shirt off. He's like, Oh, you still got that antifreeze in your blood, you know, and you do, you see folks, you know, it's cold, it's, you know, dark, it's raining. And, you know, wearing a hoodie sweatshirt, maybe, or like a t-shirt, you know, in environments that, you know, other people would be wearing, you know, layers and layers of technical gear. Um, And, You know, being out on the water, uh, being fishermen, being whalers as a tribe, uh, led them to uh, a very real appreciation and response to uh, their natural environment. I mean, they know uh, where the fish are. And, you know, I was really interested the other day, actually, I was talking to someone, a Macaw fisherman, and he said that um, he'd noticed they brought up in their net a fish that you typically only see in Hawaii you know, and he was incredibly concerned about this and what it meant uh, for, you know, ocean migration patterns. Um, And you see kind of the ways in which uh, they have their um, high schoolers. Uh, I was at the Makades in August of this past year, and they were doing this uh, incredible analysis of the appearance of different marine mammals uh, throughout their territory and charting them and noticing where they were and making sure that they were tracking that over years. And, you know, they're real stewards of the land, and they are very interested in the health of fish populations. And one of the things that has really impressed me uh, as a Northwesterner, I've been living uh, here for uh, the past 16 years, is the ways in which native tribes have led the fight to preserve species that would otherwise have gone extinct. And the idea that these tribal communities who have so many needs and often very few resources to meet all the needs of their people are doing this long-term work on behalf of everybody to preserve species that are synonymous with, for many people with being in the Pacific Northwest. It's really stayed with me, the long-term thinking uh, that many of these um, tribal governments practice with regards to land protection and species protection is something that, uh, they've developed, I believe, uh, through millennia living here. And it's something that, uh, newcomers, uh, who is basically everybody else needs to imitate.
2: Yeah. Kristen, do you think you could read us a small passage?
1: So you mentioned in your questions that the natural environment brings us into the book from the very first sentence. So I thought I would go ahead and, uh, read from the opening pages. Um, when I do, there is, there's an uh, epigraph. There's two, one by James Baldwin and one by Wilson Duff. And I want to highlight the one by Wilson Duff, who was an uh, anthropologist who worked with the Haida and other Pacific Northwest tribes and has a very interesting history described in the book. Um, but I wanted to just read that and then I'll begin the chapter.
2: That sounds perfect.
1: In the one hand, you are holding the mirror. On the other hand, you are the mask. Put on the mask and look in the mirror. That's Wilson Duff. And this is chapter one of Subduction. The shore pulled away. Froth churned from its feet to hers. The engines hummed through her bones. From the aft deck, Claudia looked back toward the city they made home. She, She searched the skyline for places they had been happy. The top of the Space Needle, a waterfront park, the Ferris wheel, until her westward passage split the horizon into expanses of gray, demarcated into sea and sky by hue alone. Puget Sound opened in fathoms below the ferry. Claudia left town without saying her goodbyes. Seattle was a small world. Movers must have swarmed her house to clear out Andrew's belongings in the space of one morning. The neighbors would have seen. What had they seen? She couldn't bring herself to ask whether her sister had been on site to supervise, and Claudia hid her phone in case someone felt like sending unsolicited glimpses of Maria deciding what to take, practicing wifeliness, slipping Andrew a kiss for courage as the first box was packed. Claudia pictured Maria's thick curls, her narrow shoulders, her rounded hips, birthing hips. The broadcaster's voice echoed through the loudspeakers, costuming passengers about unknown items and suspicious activity. It was cowardly of Andrew not to deliver the news in person. Worse still, Maria, did they think she would handle it poorly? That she was dangerous? Listening to the roar of the props, Claudia saw what her fate might have been. Her body lying in the bathtub, blue and bloated, afloat. Her stomach twisted. It was more than she could take or forgive. They knew where they were going, she thought yet they think I deserve it. Gulls swept the boat's wake. She was surprised by how close they came, how she could see feathers tracing their sinuous curves, how they were suddenly beautiful, not the splattering scavengers they had been, but flight itself. Right now, everyone I know is stuck at a desk, and then there's me, Claudia thought, on my way back into the field. As a child in Mexico, she wanted to go somewhere, anywhere, away. She had always studied people, She never envisioned herself as an anthropologist, preferring something more dashing, like explorer. But here she was, en route to the Macaw Reservation at Nia Bay, an old whaling village on the northwest tip of the lower 48. Indian country. Last year, she noticed Andrew timing her periods, his prick vanishing ten days after she first bled, which was almost funny because lately she found herself wanting to be careless, to chance it. Folding up her body on her side of the bed, ovulating alone whenever she could manage it, she had made it through her thirties unscathed. And that was when they were still trying. And now, she thought, I'm old. I'd have a baby with downs if I could have one at all. I just wanted something for myself, still do something bigger for myself, bigger than myself, bigger than all of this. I don't know how to get it without wanting it. Why couldn't he understand? Besides, what kind of man fucks his wife's sister? Claudia tilted her head to consider the inverse. What kind of wife would allow her husband to become so close to her sister that he could fall for her, fall inside of her, fill her up? Only a conniving bitch would wrap her legs around her brother-in-law. Maria's legs were curvy. Great gams, Andrew once said. In horror of excess flesh, Claudia had carved herself to gristle. Maria's thighs bloomed. Claudia imagined they would shake in sweaty reverberation during sex, a shuddering and prayerful response to the call of loins striking flank, so unlike the flat slap of muscle her own lovemaking had become. Last month, when her fingers crept between buttons to his curly nest, his hand rose to still her wayward progress. She left her arm on top of him, trying to act natural, like this was cuddling. They pretended to sleep. It took 10 minutes to amass the strength to roll under her back and concede. It was terrible to be uneasy in her own bed. She hadn't felt that way since college. But this time, it was her husband, and having had his love and lost it made her physically ill, a malaise so invasive it was as though she were at altitude, her body shutting down extremities, fingertips first. Sign the papers and be done with it. He wants out.
2: Thank you, Kristen. You know, that was wonderful. I think that that gives a really great example to our listeners about the beauty of the prose uh, and the poetry of the prose in this book. Um, so thank you for that. That section actually, and others, makes me does make me wonder, do you think this book is fundamentally about belonging? Do you think that that's an appropriate word to use?
1: No, absolutely. You know, as someone who grew up in diaspora and has a forged community wherever I go, um, I have as a writer, as a reporter, and I've been very interested in the ways in which some peoples actually do belong somewhere. And you know, I, my family, and I have been very lucky uh, during uh, tr- times of tremendous socioeconomic and political unrest, beginning in Spain and then in Cuba, and now in the United States, um, to find a place that we could call home but it had not been our home before. And we made it our home. And so when I began encountering uh, native peoples who were actually from the land where they lived, it really caused me to reflect on what belonging means. And I think that many people feel that they belong to a place uh, or that the place belongs to them but their claim to it is um is very recent and i think that as a society we need to honor the land claims of peoples who have preceded most of the population in living in this place um And so, but that sense of belonging is not just associated with the landscape, it's also uh, in the fabric of the family and in the fabric of the tribal structure and the neighborhood and the neighbors and the community uh, who have these events um, where everyone gathers and bears witness to each other's claims and to each other's cultural resources. And that sense of belonging is being anchored in people I think is something that belies our culture's dominant focus on labor mobility as an emblem of progress.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I did want to ask you too about your uh, research experience when putting this book together. You come from a background in investigative journalism. You talked about some of your own times and experiences on the Macabre Reservation. Uh, What is your creative process like? Uh, It took you 10 years to write. Uh, What was that process like?
1: Well, for me, unfortunately, though I had been educated in what I had felt were the very best uh, schools that I could find, um, you know, I went to Harvard and there I studied uh, through my focus in history and literature of Latin America. I focused on uh, a lot of moments of contact between indigenous peoples and colonizers. And so it provided kind of a a general backdrop to the learning that I needed to do independently over a period of several years. I did nothing but read and go to Nia Bay to hang out and talk to people and uh, conduct, uh, you know, interviews to create oral histories that I would share with those people and their families and um, with the Macaw Cultural and Research Center. And um, I began volunteering uh, for the MCRC and uh, wrote a series of newsletters for them, actually wrote an obituary of Dr. Doherty, uh, who was honored uh, by the MCRC for his work uh, with Macaw Tribe, a work which I think has um, created a standard of engagement of, of a professional and respectful engagement that I hope that other uh, excavation projects uh, find and uh, useful and, and bring into their practice. Uh, Because Macaw tribal members were the ones doing the excavation and cataloging the items. And, you know, they are in charge of their own stuff. Um, And that's the way it should be. Um, And I think that his example uh, really helped um, provide uh, proof that this is a a successful way of doing things. So, you know, I spent several years just researching and I didn't just, you know, read everything that, you know, every academic and Macaw tribal member had produced about that dig and their culture. And uh, but I also looked at, you know, all of the unpublished notes from early anthropologists and I looked at the oral histories um, given by Macaw elders who really dedicated many, many hours to that fraught work you know, they themselves created cultural knowledge so that it could be um, taken care of by the tribal members themselves um, during times when perhaps there wasn't as much interest in the revitalization. Um, Now, you know, and, you know, uh, the Ozette dig um, was a a moment of gathering of interest, um, and they've sustained and uh, enhanced and Develop that interest in cultural preservation. Uh, that they also conduct the other means um, through you know, being together, showing up, uh, and listening to their stories. You know, telling stories and listening to stories. So I spent a lot of time listening to stories and talking to people and hanging out, um, and not in a an organized way. You know, but just literally posting up somewhere for several hours and just talking. Um, and that's something that I feel like our culture, the mainstream culture doesn't make time for, I mean, living in Seattle, I consistently and deliberately startle people by saying hello to them on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they look at me and if they are, you know, in, in possession of a, what I would call a decent spirit, they'll say hello back. You know, sometimes they startle into their phones. they literally just pull up the phone real quick as though they're so afraid, you know, that someone said hello to them or they don't know what to do. Um, so this idea of just hanging out and talking with very little purpose, except to get to know each other is one that is antithetical to a lot of the urban environments, um, that I've been in. And, um, so, so that process kind of began my thinking. And then during the years of research that I was doing, um, I began to kind of dream through the lives of these characters and spent just a tremendous amount of time with them, um, writing through their thoughts, writing through their histories, um, kind of method feeling for them. I mean, I would be tremendously disoriented and and emotionally saturated by writing some of the scenes that made their way into the book, because you really do, as a writer, need to fully inhabit that character. And, and a lot of times, they don't necessarily want to do what you they were going to do so then you're kind of like following them around which is very disturbing when you years you know there's this moments that happened in the middle of the book that I wasn't anticipating and they ended up being pivotal for the book and so I, I called up a friend of mine who's you know written a lot of books and uh and he said oh that's good it means that they're alive and you, that's good that's good and I was you know hysterical <laughs> I was like, it's been years and I still don't have a grip on this thing. And he said, no, that means that they've actually taken on a life beyond your control. And so kind of submitting to that knowledge that some of the beauty and magic of the book would be beyond my control was part of the process of turning into what you read.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I asked you that question is because it was really apparent to me the amount of uh, research, both historical and otherwise, that had gone into this book. I mean, you had mentioned casually, offhand, at one point, the scholarship of Joshua Reed, uh, who I and other historians are familiar with. Um, I found it just very insightful uh, that to put together this novel, you had delved into a lot of in-depth research to to write it. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, actually comes from your acknowledgements. Um, At the end, in the acknowledgements, you say that, this is a quote, that you write to improve the quality of our ideas available to our society. I wanted to ask, what do you hope readers take away from this book?
1: First of all, I want to say that you mentioned Joshua Reed's work. And I have to say that The Sea Is My Country is one of the very, it it is the very best nonfiction work ever to be produced about the Macaw people. Uh, And I cannot uh, speak more highly of his scholarship and, um, and the beauty of his thinking. So I just want to put that out there because it's, it's a wonderful book and then it just, it's, it's just so good that it's a pleasure to read and, it's, and, and it also makes you think and provokes uh, deep um, forensic uh, rethinking, I hope, in its readers. So, you know, part of what I wanted to do, because the book does not create... Um, an easy redemptive arc for its characters, right? Subduction does not show you someone who has this kind of sentimental catharsis uh, towards the end and in which all of their pain is resolved. And now, you know, they're ready for the Oprah book club. Um, instead it asks troubling questions through fraught characters who make bad decisions and, I think about uh, the purpose of a book, which for me is to create uh, emotional resonance that can be uh, disturbing enough to dislodge um, unexamined thought patterns. I think a lot of people have ideas about what it means to be an immigrant in this culture or what it means to be uh, a first person in this culture. And they, don't question their own prejudice with respect to those ideas. And for me, what I wanted to do with this book and its troubling questions is to make people rethink the ways in which they have interacted with others and how they have or have not um, been ethical in their use of power when interacting uh, with other people's. Yeah. You know,
2: I just want to ask you one more thing. You know, where does the title come from? You make a reference at one point without using the word subduction to the geological process of subduction. um, But what is the meaning behind it? How did you name the book?
1: Well, every person who lives in the Pacific Northwest knows that there's a a big earthquake that's coming uh, through the subduction zone Uh, which is where one of the Earth's plates is uh, being subsumed by another. And the friction and conflict between those two plates uh, creates uh, geologic activity that can lead to earthquakes and can lead to volcanic activity. And um, it seemed to me to be a, a very apt structure for thinking of the ways that some stories get subsumed by others and some identities get subsumed by others. And so it became, um, and, and, the, and the consequences of that, if it's, if that friction and conflict are ignored, uh, over time.
2: You know, Kristen, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, before I let you go, I did just want to ask you, you mentioned at the beginning that you're working on something new. Uh, what are you working on next?
1: Well, in 2016, I began researching, uh, my next novel, which is called Great Mother. And it is set in two times. Uh, One of them is in the uh, time during the Roman Empire in which the pagan religions were being subsumed by uh, Christianity. And there is a a particular mother, mother goddess worshiping cult that... I found fascinating as it presented a very compelling case for being the prototype for the relationship between Jesus and Mary. Uh, And that is the cult of Sibeli who's uh, had this lover named Addis who was unfaithful to her. And so um, castrates himself and dies and is resurrected by her to live in this kind of, um, you know, uh, for the time, very unusual sexless relationship. Um, and in, Ro- in the Roman pantheon, to have a God who uh, is born without a father and dies without sons belies the entire kind of family structure of uh, the Roman gods. Um, so it's a very unusual um, figure and uh, part of what they call the dying gods, Right. So there's this um, ceremony that happens that takes place over a week, and it's at the very same week as the Passion Week for Christianity, uh, which marks the uh, resurrection of Jesus. And in this this mother goddess worshiping cult, there would be uh, traveling groups of priests who would uh, enact uh, the castration of Addis and make someone into someone would self select into being a living Addis. And you um, can read about these group called the Galley uh, who are in Apuleius. Um, So there's plenty of um, you, Mary Beard, a wonderful classicist, um, writes about them. And um, I became fascinated with this idea of a like the highest God being a woman, uh, a possibility that had never been shown to me um, in all of my education. <laughs> You know, and I was like, what else have I not loaned? <laughs> <laughs> so then the other, um, part of the book is, uh, as I more memoiristic, um, and is actually a nonfiction, um, and shows me, uh, traveling throughout, uh, Spain, uh, which is where my uh, Cuban family, uh, part of my Cuban family is from. And as a new mother, uh, looking for clues in these archeological sites, And then using what i find there to peel back the levels of truths and stories within my own family history
2: wow yeah that sounds excellent (laughs)
1: thanks (laughs) i've never told anyone (laughs) so now people are going to hear it (laughs)
2: now they know yeah well kristen i just really want to thank you for coming on today it was it was excellent to have you it was great to hear from the book um, thank you so much her new novel Subduction is out now through Red Hand Press
1: now thank you so much for having me and as I said you are one of my very first readers and it's been a pleasure to talk to you
2: oh thank you Kristen you take care okay bye bye